welcome to the Sunday Showdown. Uh, we are debating whether or not selfishness is a virtue today. Um, we have uh, Sirius taking the nay side. He is on my... Oh, I actually got that right. So he's on my left. And uh, we have down on my right uh, taking the yay side. Um, quick word about format. Uh, there will be one five-minute opening statement for each party that will be decided on a coin toss. Who goes first? Um, you will then be entitled to up to five minutes of uh, uh, responses, respectively. Um, there will then be 30 minutes for open discussion, and then 15 to 25 minutes of audience questions, depending on how many we get. Uh, super chats uh, are prioritized for questions. If you don't want a super chat, put an asterisk at the beginning and at the end of your question so I can find them easily in the chat. All right, sound good? So we're going to very quickly flip a coin to see who will go first. Um, unless somebody wants to yield. You have five seconds to make that determination. Heads or tails, serious. I'll yield to whatever. You'll yield? Dan, are you good uh, going first? Yeah, sure. I can go first. All right, we can do that then. So, Dan, uh, let me set your timer, and you will have five minutes. And very quickly before we begin, sorry for the scatteredness, it's been a little while since I've done this. Um, very strict rules about conduct, both for the uh, participants and for the audience. No slurs, no personal insults against the appearance, voice, etc., etc. Any personal quality of the speakers. Um, pretend you're in a university setting and the uh, dean is Hitler and will kill you immediately if you break the rules, because that is indeed the case. So, uh, Dan, you have five minutes. Please begin. Okay, and uh, just to, in case there's any doubts, I'm on your left as it appears on YouTube. I think you might have said I'm on your right. Yes. Uh, anyways, I'm the one whose photo you can see. <laughs> okay. So, my opening statement. Selfishness is conventionally understood to mean acting in a way that benefits yourself while harming others. For instance, being a rude jerk and cutting in line, or being a dictator who enslaves others. These are conventionally considered to be selfish people. Ayn Rand, whose philosophy I support, rejects this conventional conception of selfishness. She thinks such people are not actually selfish, at least if being selfish means acting in a way that serves your own long-term self-interest. On the contrary, such people are self-destructive. For instance, consider the dictator who enslaves others. By enslaving others, he puts himself at war with them. His victims have an incentive to rebel, overthrow, and perhaps kill him. And history provides many examples of men who rise to power and are then assassinated shortly thereafter by some other strong man, who in turn is assassinated by some other strong man. And so the cycle of brutality continues. And even if he isn't assassinated, there are harmful psychological effects of being a dictator. For instance, a dictator might suffer from the constant fear of being assassinated. He might constantly worry that one of his subjects, perhaps someone within his own household or bodyguard, will poison him or stab him in the back in order to take power himself. How well can you sleep at night if that fear is constantly hanging over your head? And what does being an oppressive dictator do to your capacity to form friendships or romantic relationships? If you treat others badly, who will want to be your friend or lover? And can you trust anyone who does try to be your friend or lover? Or will you be constantly plagued by doubts that they are just sycophants pretending to like you because they want to be in your good graces in order not to be enslaved or executed? 
or in order to get some special favor from you. And what does it do to your self-esteem? Can you really respect yourself if you live as a parasite on others, knowing that you have done nothing to deserve your possessions? Or will your possessions leave you feeling empty and guilty because you know that they rightfully belong to others? If one considers all the effects of being a dictator, including the psychological effects, I think the proper conclusion to draw is clear. It is not in one's interest to be a dictator. Similar considerations apply to being a robber, a rapist, a conman, or simply a rude jerk. A man who is truly self-interested, in Rand's view, is one who exercises his rational mind to the best of his ability to produce the values that his survival requires. By using his mind to support himself, whether as a janitor, a computer programmer, or a scientist, he earns self-esteem, which is crucial to happiness. Rationality is the basic virtue in Rand's moral code, but she also identifies six other virtues. These are independence, integrity, honesty, justice, productiveness, and pride. Rand considered these virtues to be different ways of being rational. They are principles of action that, if adhered to, maximize one's chances of achieving happiness, which, for Rand, is properly the purpose of one's life. Happiness, as Rand understands it, is, quote, a state of non-contradictory joy, a joy without penalty or guilt, a joy that does not clash with any of your values and does not work for your own destruction. Not the joy of escaping from your mind, but of using your mind's fullest power. Not the joy of faking reality, but of achieving values that are real. Not the joy of a drunkard, but of a producer. Happiness is possible only to a rational man, a man who desires nothing but rational goals, seeks nothing but rational values, and finds his joy in nothing but rational actions." Unquote. The basic vice, according to Rand, is irrationality. For example, indulging short-range desires at the cost of one's long-range well-being. It is not in one's self-interest to do whatever one feels like in the moment, heedless of consequences. Okay, Dan, you're at the five-minute mark. Can you wrap up in 30 seconds? Yeah. Whim-worshipping emotionalism is self-destructive, not self-interested. Is selfishness a virtue? Virtue is a means by which one attains value. So the answer depends on what value one aims to, aims to attain. If a life of happiness is a value, which it is for Rand, indeed, it is the highest value. And selfishness is indeed a virtue, at least if it is understood in Rand's sense. That is, if it is understood to mean a life guided by reason, including all of the virtues that that involves. All right. So the question of this debate, whether or not selfishness is... Sorry, I just realized I was muted on YouTube. So Sirius okay. is going to make his uh, five-minute <laughs> opening statement, and then I, he will get a 30-second grace period as well if it goes over. All right. Sorry, begin. All right. The question of this debate, whether or not selfishness is a virtue, is meant to get at the basic motivation for Ayn Rand's morality. To Rand, selfishness is the highest virtue because it is the only rational ethic. Reason being our means of navigating the world, it only makes sense that our ethics should be rational, 
constructed with this ultimate end in mind. However, this ethic raises the question of what selfishness actually is. Definitions of selfishness fall along a scale. While all definitions agree that selfishness involves acting on your wants, um, where they differ is in what wants are considered selfish to act on. A broad definition of selfishness is permissive of many different kinds of wants. On this view, acting on even the most nebulous of wants, like your own happiness or self-fulfillment, can be seen as selfish, even when doing so leads to the benefit of others or no seeming benefit to you. On the other side of the spectrum, selfishness is defined more narrowly as acting only on specific wants. Under this view, some wants may be selfish, like the want to hoard all of your Halloween candy. Other wants, however, can be altruistic, like sharing your candy with your family. The fact that you wanted to give the candy away would not undermine the act being altruistic under this view. The problem I see for Rand is that any definition of selfishness we adopt will be inadequate for Rand's ethical project. If we take a broad view of selfishness with nebulous goals, Rand's ethics simply don't follow. I could concede right here that selfishness is a virtue and still contend that I'm not a Randian, and there would be no irrationality in me doing so. After all, what if my broadest, most nebulous wants have conflicts with Rand's ethical framework? There would be no good reason to act against them. So what of a more restrictive definition? Under this, it's easier to see how Rand's ethics follow. Your broader, more nebulous wants may in fact not be the wants you should have, as they are oriented towards altruism. Putting those wants aside for other wants, i.e. selfish wants, would be better for you. However, it's unclear then what the motivation there would be to be selfish. On the one hand, if it is itself virtuous to be selfish, even when doing so conflicts with other wants you have, it seems Rand has just introduced another kind of moral cannibalism, where your values are subordinate to some other metaphysically more important value. On the other hand, if what makes selfishness a virtue is that acting on selfish wants will lead to fulfillment of your higher wants, then we've simply reinvented the broad definition, and in doing so made adherence to selfishness conditional. As with earlier, your higher wants may have conflicting have conflicts with selfishness, and you would then have reason to reject selfishness and not adopt Rand's ethics. I expect that Dan will try to appeal to some set of higher values we all share in order to vindicate objectivism. In his debates with other YouTubers, this seems to be his strategy. Consider how he justifies why it would be wrong to kill others without justification. Even if one could guarantee that they would get away with it and wouldn't get caught, he contends that if they have normal psychology, a rational person would feel guilt. I know I certainly would feel guilt, but I see two problems with this. For one, I don't think psychology is as universal as Dan believes, or at the very least, the status of psychological universals is highly contested. Unless these supposed universals can be conclusively established, using them to form an ethical theory is premature. For two, even if we accept that only a few people deviate significantly from psychological normality, the existence of these people poses a problem for calling this an objective ethic at all. Even one exception, one person for whom Randianism is the wrong, wrong ethic, undermines its claim to objectivity. Even worse, it seems that someone who is aware of this ethic, while having no reason to accept it for themselves, would be in a position to exploit dogmatic adherence to Randian ethics, and in doing so undermine the claim that it leads to the most harmonious society. In all of the cases mentioned, it seems that Randian object that sorry. In all of these cases mentioned, it seems that Randian objectivism is not conclusively supported. Seemingly no definition of selfishness is able to adequately justify Rand's ethics, and thus the question of its virtue is dissolved in the context of this debate. All right, I see the rest of my time. Well done. Brilliant. Dan, you have five minutes to make a response uninterrupted if you would like. Please begin. Okay. 
I don't know if I'll use full five minutes, but uh, you don't have to. That's, that's just the, the ceiling. Five minutes is just the ceiling. You can go yeah, yeah as short yeah. as you want. Uh, sorry, sorry, I uh, went over in the opening statement. I I forgot to factor in my brief aside that uh, identified which side of you I was on in the picture, and that ate up some of my time. But anyway, um, so there was a lot in Sirius's opening statements, and I wasn't able to. Um, make notes on all of it but one I'll, I'll just start by addressing one part of it so i do think that uh, the the project of ethics and philosophy is to identify a code of values for humans to live by uh and i i think there we have to accept that there is something like a norm uh that applies to human beings. So there might be psychopaths uh, who get some kicks or pleasure in some abnormal way, but I don't think the point of ethics, at least as I'm pursuing it and as, as Rand is pursuing it, is to come up with some ethics that applies to every last person who has a certain kind of DNA that we describe as human. It's, there might be a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of freak cases that this doesn't apply to but i don't think that's relevant to the project of ethics so uh, i think for the vast majority of human beings it's not in their interest to be serial killers or bank robbers or rapists or dictators um, and i i think figuring out what ethics is for human beings as they normally are not because they have some uh, genetic defect perhaps that makes their brain strange so they get pleasure in some other way um th those those freak cases we might call it are, are not really relevant to the project of ethics uh and i don't think it makes it non-objective if it doesn't apply to uh psychopaths i don't because i don't think the point of ethics is to apply to psychopaths <laughs> it's, it's to give normal people guidance in how they conduct their lives and how to achieve their happiness. I think that's that's the purpose of ethics. So I, I think it's just a, a kind of red herring to to dwell on um, some freak cases, assuming there are any. I don't know if there actually are any psychopaths who could literally achieve their happiness um, in a sense that I mean happiness. I mean, maybe they can get kind of some sick, twisted pleasure from engaging in uh, Jeffrey Dahmer-like behavior, but I would not call that happiness in the sense that uh, I understand it, in the sense that I'm trying to pursue in my own life. So, let's see. Do I have anything else I want to say in my opening statement? I think I have a couple minutes left. You've got right? two minutes left, exactly. Okay. Uh, you did talk a lot about wants and different kinds of wants and how these could figure into different definitions of selfishness, perhaps. I'm not sure I followed all of that. Maybe we could get into that some more. I guess I'll just use this opportunity to uh, to say, that, again, uh, that Rand has a non-conventional conception of selfishness. So it simply means, at, a, at the most basic level, being concerned with your own interest. It does not include harming others. That part about harming others pursuing your own interest in a way that's harmful to others or at the expense of others, that's the conventional understanding of selfishness, which Ayn Rand rejects. Some people have said, well, maybe she should have used a different word to describe her view. 
since what she means by the word isn't what most people mean by the word. So isn't it just causing confusion? And I think that's an, a reasonable a reasonable objection she one could raise. But the the more important point here is not linguistic. It's not about it's not semantics. It's not about what label we use. If we look at what she's actually talking about in reality, what is the best kind of life for humans to live? Uh, she says that it's one where you're pursuing your self-interest. What's best for yourself? You're not putting others ahead of yourself. You're not subordinating your interest to other people. That would be the altruist view or the self-sacrificing view, which is common to religion. It's also been secularized in, in the modern world. Many people, even who aren't people who aren't overtly religious, accept a altruistic sort of view of what's moral. They think it's best to put others above yourself, but she rejects that. She thinks it's best to pursue what's best for yourself and uh, your own happiness. All right, I'll stop there. That's right on the dot. Uh, Sirius, you have five minutes to make your response. Wait, just a quick, quick clarifying question. Um, am I only responding to stuff that he said in the opening, or am I responding to anything he said up to this point? Uh, well, uh, uh, yes, I, either or. <laughs> you have five minutes to make. Either or? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay, begin. All right. Okay, so I'm going to quickly go through some of the stuff that was said in the opening. Um, so I think that what... Um, Dan is talking about with it not actually being in your self-interest to do things that are against um, against other people or putting yourself at war with other people. And he gives the example of dictators. And I can maybe say that I wouldn't want to be a dictator, that I wouldn't think that it's worth it in the long run to do that. But I don't know that Dan can conclusively say that this is true for all people. Um, I think that you know, as I got to in my opening, uh, I think that it implies a kind of psychological universality that is not conclusively demonstrated. You know, a lot of people actually thrive on risky behaviors and get a like a huge rush out of doing things that are risky. And what's more risky than putting your life at on the line to uh, to like be a dictator of a society? I think that you know, obviously, it's an extreme case, but the basic point that I'm getting at is that all it takes is one person for whom this doesn't apply. And the entire force of Rand's ethics is out the window. And I think crucially, the, the part that I really want to stress is that if we have a society where most people are adhering to a specific set of norms, and they're doing so dogmatically, as is, as would be the case for an objective ethic, um, I, I think that having people who are outside of that allows them to exploit uh, people's adherence to it. I think that um, when we have this kind of uh, morality, then, you know, if somebody just doesn't hold to it, they can pretend to hold to it and then exploit people's willingness to go along. Like, you know, a lot of people will exploit people's honesty and use that against them. And if something you know, doesn't benefit them in the way that Rand uh, is describing. Like, if they just don't derive those same kinds of benefits, then, um, you know, wh who are you to say that they shouldn't do that? It, they have the exact same justifications that Rand does. Um, I think another big problem is that I don't know that you can privilege happiness over other kinds of um, wants. So obviously, a lot of people do want happiness, but there's a large contingent of people for whom happiness 
doesn't seem to be their highest want. And I don't know that you can say they're irrational for thinking that. Um, you would need to appeal to some other kind of reason that it would be irrational to put uh, somebody else's happiness or just anything over one's happiness. And in doing so, you would need an independent justification that I don't think is really offered in Rand. Um, I think Rand tries her best to uh, show why um, you know, happiness is the state of non-contradictory joy, as um, Dan laid out. But in doing so, I feel like she just kind of defines all of the things that she doesn't like or that conflict with uh, the ethical theory that she lays out as not being real happiness, you know? Uh, and Dan did this a little bit as well, like where he was talking about how psychopaths, you know, maybe they get a sick, twisted joy, but that's not real happiness. You know, that that can't be real happiness. But who's to say that that's not real happiness? I, I don't know that um, what makes it, like what makes it real happiness if not the experience of joy? And if it's because they are doing it for the wrong reasons, then the question then becomes, well, what are the right reasons? And the right reasons just seem to be to Rand to just be the ones that lead to your happiness. But now we're just, you know, we're kind of going in circles. Like it, you're, you're justifying a kind of um, a specific mode of being or way of being and saying that anybody who doesn't accept that is just, you know, they're just being irrational because they don't comport with, uh, or their sense of happiness doesn't comport with yours. And I don't know, I think that that is a, an unreasonably high uh, hurdle to have to get over. And I don't think that Rand is capable of justifying that. And I don't think that there's empirical evidence to justify that people have these kinds of universal values. Um, yeah, that's where I'll stop because I've only got 15 seconds. Okay, brilliant. And now you're going to have 30 minutes for open discussion. Uh, again, people in the audience, um, if you want to ask questions, there will be a 15 to 20 minute question period at the end. Um, super chats will be prioritized. Um, otherwise, put an asterisk at the beginning and the end of your question so I can find it in the chat quickly when we get to that. So 30 minutes, take it away. Yeah, so I guess where I'll start is, so how what, what objection would you have to somebody who just decides to put uh, some other value over their happiness. Like they have desires, but the desires they have don't end up coming out as just them being happy. They just have desires that conflict with being happy. Why would they, why should they desire or their happiness over those other kinds of desires? I think it's, it's in the nature of the phenomenon itself. It's like asking, why should you desire pleasure? Why should you, desire to avoid pain it's just given to us by nature as pleasure is is biologically inbuilt it's it feels good and pain is biologically inbuilt feel bad so i mean if for some reason you, you just uh you don't want pleasure or you do want pain it seems like you're just uh going against what is given to you by nature uh, I mean, I can't see any reason beyond the phenomenon itself. It's just in the nature of the phenomenon that you would want pleasure, including a including happiness. If we construe happiness as a type of pleasure, 
Um, there, I mean, there's different types of pleasure. There's like sensory pleasures that you get from eating food. And then there's what you might call emotional pleasures from maybe getting a good piece of news. You just got a raise on a job or you want to marry someone and they say, yes, these are emotional pleasures, not physical pleasures. So if you construe happiness as a kind of uh, emotional or psychological pleasure, um, it's just, it kind of wears on its sleeve why you should want it. And if someone doesn't want that, I mean, I, I don't really have anything I can say to them. I mean, they can choose not to pursue that, but it just seems uh, prima facie irrational to me. So can you click? So it seems to me that what you're talking about is like we just have specific intuitions about uh, what is good and what is bad. And um, when we talk about pleasure, it just seems self-evidently the case that pleasure is good and that it's self-evidently the case that pain is bad. But would that would you say that this is like more or less what you're getting at, that it's just kind of evident in our experience of the thing? I think it's just inherent in the experience I think the where we get our concept, good and bad from, is originally pleasure. Like if we didn't have the experience of pleasure at all or pain, I don't think we would have any basis for forming any concept that one thing is good or another thing is bad. So okay. I think the entire concepts are based on those kinds, yeah. kinds so, of experiences. So just a quick thing, though, is that you basically what you're saying is that like it's an intuition that we have that you know it's just self-evidently the case. But what about other intuitions, like other ethical intuitions that we have, um, you know, Rand is really against ethical intuitionism. And to be fair, I am as well. But if we're going to say that pleasure and pain are justified, you know, it, it's irrational to not pursue them because they're self-evidently good to us. Then why isn't it also the case that other things that we intuitively find to be um, bad or good, you know, those things you know, those don't count as legitimate intuitions, but pleasure and pain, those do count as real intuitions. Well, I, there's a premise of the question here, which is that intuition is the basis for thinking one thing is good or not. I, I don't think Rand uses that term. Uh, I, I know it's used a lot in philosophic literature, um, but she doesn't use that term. Um. So what if not? So I, I wouldn't say it's life. if it's it's not an intuition. Like if you're if you're just a baby, you're experiencing uh, the a cookie. You're eating a cookie. You get some pleasure from that. I wouldn't say the baby has an intuition that's good. I mean, it experiences it as good. It experiences, say, scraping its knee on a rock as painful. I, I wouldn't say that's an an issue of intuition animals also who you know they don't even have a rational capacity uh at least plausibly so you know frogs dogs cats they experience pleasure they experience pain and i think they experience them as good and as bad i wouldn't say it's an issue of intuition that they're good or bad so what if somebody experiences certain things that are painful as being good or th certain things that are pleasurable as being bad because I can think of a lot of cases in which somebody would do that. Like if they are, you know, deriving pleasure for the wrong reasons or reasons that are contrary to their values, you know, that could be seen as a bad thing to them on reflection, even if it's not experienced as pleasurable. So it's clearly you think that 
something need there's like some evolution past this initial um pleasure pain dichotomy correct i mean you can recognize something like uh pain of a dentist as being good if you see it as part of a larger picture so mm -hmm. uh, the pain itself is you experience that as bad but if you see how it fits into a larger context like I choose to go to the dentist and have my teeth drilled in order to stop this tooth decay because I realize that by doing that, I'm going to uh, get rid of much more pain in the future if I don't get this taken care of. Therefore, it's going to serve my overall pleasure uh, and happiness in the future by undergoing this short-run pain. Then I can see how you could rationally see this delimited case of, pleasure, of pain as being worth it, as being good for your overall life and well-being. So on net, it's best for your happiness and well-being to experience this short-run pain in the moment. But I don't think you, it makes sense to say on net, it's good for me to experience pain and suffering. Why not? See what I mean? Well, there I think it's just, uh, I think it's self-evident. Like why on net would you want oh. to feel bad? I mean... I don't know that I have anything I can say to you. I think that's, it's just the nature of the phenomenon. Well, I, I think a lot of people, you know, just, just say people with uh, severe depression, they don't think that they deserve to be happy. So why into them the just saying, Oh, I, I think that, you know, you should be happy. You know, that has no force for them. So I, I, I'm kind of, confused then what like uh if this is meant to be like the rational ethic like what's the rational reason that you should think of pleasure as good and pain as bad if you don't already uh we can talk about the the depressed person but i, I mean at a certain level there's just nothing i can say i, I think it's just self-evidence why one is preferable over the other i think it's just biologically inbuilt but if there is uh, like a depressed person who who doesn't he's worthy of happiness well i would want to know well why why does he not think he's worthy of happiness is it maybe there are good reasons maybe he's made some very bad choices in life maybe he's chosen to be a dictator or a serial killer or a robber or a rapist a con artist and he deserves the the negative emotions that he's experiencing maybe it's because of something that's not within his control maybe he he just has some hormone or chemical imbalance in his brain and maybe medication help that person out but uh Crucially, that's though, different than saying he doesn't want it i mean if if there were a way to get happiness i think it's clear why he he would want to pursue that so why i okay so you're saying that he would actually want it but he clearly doesn't because there are things that you could do to help with depression that a lot of depressed people don't do so, you know, under your definition of want, if like happiness is all people ever value, then why, you know, what is it that's like stopping people in this case? You know, like, you say they have the wrong, say they don't think they deserve happiness, but they have the wrong reasons for thinking so. How would you, um, how would you say that they're irrational? I, I think just in a broader sense, you know, if you have to choose between the two, I, I don't know that you can just say that it's self-evident that happiness is better. You know, I think happiness is better. I know that what I would want, but if somebody disagrees on that, I don't think that you can mount a compelling argument. 
And that's, I think, what is required for an, a, an ethic to be objective. You know, in, in order for an ethic to be objective, it needs to, you, it needs to give compelling reasons to do something that are independent of your desires. But if I don't have desires that include happiness, then, you know, maybe Rand's ethics just doesn't follow for me. Maybe not. I mean, it is an ethics for pursuing happiness. So if you just don't care about happiness, that's not what you want, then I don't see a reason to follow her ethics. But I think okay, cool. for if you do want happiness, then I, I think this is a good ethic. Okay. So I, I have nothing to say to convince somebody who's dead set on not wanting happiness. Okay. So then the question is basic. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that if you have, you can put aside Rand's ethic and do so rationally. It's not irrational to do so. You might, it might be irrational to do so under your values and what you think is good and bad. But if somebody has a different conception of good and bad, then it wouldn't be irrational under their values, correct? Well, how are we deciding what's rational then? If we're if we're just if we're not using happiness or or life, she also talks about using life as a standard where psych happiness is a psychological aspect of life. If we're not using something like your your own life or your own happiness as a standard, then by what standard are you saying? it's rational to i i mean i think that i mean to me i don't think that it is rational i would say that it's you can use rational principles from to derive certain conclusions from given values but i don't know that you can say the values themselves are rational which is what i'm getting at here that our our decision to privilege pleasure over anything else or lack of pain over anything else is ultimately not a rational decision we make it's something that just appears to us as part of our intuition okay i mean if i think it pleasure and pain does provide a rational standard but so, well, if you don't on. think it does then 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 what could be so what i'm not saying no this standard? is the thing is that i'm not saying it doesn't provide a standard i just it, rational which, standard so why is it but why is it a rational standard if what's be if it's not being derived from rationality itself well there can't be an infinite regress of of derivation so i think what's what's given is the innate or intrinsic we might say goodness of pleasure and the innate badness or intrinsic badness of pain. I think that's just the given foundation, and that provides a a standard by which we measure other things as being rational or irrational. So if it leads, if it helps further the the pain or sorry the the pleasure sort of experience, then it's rational. And if it leads away from that, if it leads toward the pain, it's side, then it's irrational. So all I can do is point to that given fact of, of nature that certain things feel good and certain things feel bad and i can't really get beneath that so what about but if you if you don't want to ex Sorry. yeah so if you don't want to accept that then i i just want to know well what other standard could there be for goodness and badness if you're not going to go with pleasure and pain i mean i would say for one that i don't i don't think that any decision you make for what's good and bad is going to be uh 
rational. So I would say that there are a lot of considerations that might go into it. But I, I think I also want to hammer in on, sorry, hold on, just trying to catch my train of thought. I want to I want to hammer in on what you're talking about with um Sorry, can you repeat like 10 seconds ago what you said? I'm I I think I lost it in my head. Just I think there's an intrinsic goodness to mm -hmm. pleasure and then an intrinsic badness to pain which you can't get beneath. And I think those experiences provide the basis for claiming that anything is rational. So irrational okay. so if something leads for the pleasure it's rational otherwise it's irrational and if you don't use that as your basis then i just don't see where you could get any standard for rationality okay awesome so i guess there's a couple of things that i would say on this so what about cases where it's plausible or at least plausibly the case that the irrational option would lead to more happiness um so for example i would say that uh just say, for example, like Newcomb's problem, you know, a lot of people would say that, uh, do you know what Newcomb's problem is? Just, just to make sure. Uh, well, I heard of it. I forgot, but, but if it leads to more happiness, then I would say it's not the irrational option. It's, it's the rational one. Okay. So you're just defining rationality as whatever leads to more happiness. I don't know if I would define it that way in every context, but in an ethical context where we're talking about Good and bad, I, I think uh, maybe, yeah, that, that is basically what I'm doing. Well, okay, but if you're saying, so rationality in, in an ethical context is different from rationality in every other context? Not sure. I'm just being cautious here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, at least in an ethical context where we're talking about what's rational or irrational to do, I think it comes down to pleasure and pain. So, so this is the Maybe other of, context too, but at least in this context. Yeah. So that's, this is what I'm getting at though, is that it seems to me that rationality is something we apply is it's like a process of reasoning that we apply to things, but it doesn't give like values or reasons in and of itself, uh, you know, beyond like what you have to accept for rationality to hold. So I think that you can plausibly make the case that if you value pleasure and pain, then you could reasonably like, or rather you could reason to certain conclusions based on that. But if you value other things, then rationality works just as well to reason on those grounds as well. Um, I think though that, you know, I, I think we're kind of going a little bit in a circle on this point. So if you'd like, we can, uh, I guess, move up like a step on this because I still have, like objections, I would um, say. There is a uh, yeah. yeah. We we we've got like ten minutes left of open discussion. We can extend that by an additional fifteen minutes if you would both like to continue a little bit farther. I'd love to. Uh, Dan, are you okay sure, with that? I'm up for that. All right, so we'll we'll boost that by uh, fifteen minutes. It'll be half an hour until uh, audience questions. Uh, please yeah. continue. So I guess the the one and very very quickly go... very quickly yeah. just before we go on, um, if you have a question. Uh, in the audience and you'd like to ask either of our two participants, please specify in your question who the participant is. If you're super chatting, you jump the queue. If you're asking in the chat, put an asterisk at the beginning and at the end. Thank you. Continue, guys. Yeah. So I, I guess if we want to go up a level, say that, you know, all of us plausibly... Okay, okay, before we go up a level, can I just say one thing about go your last it. point? Um, so I think the concept of value, like the concept of good, is also dependent on 
the experience of pleasure. So if we didn't have the concept of pleasure or the concept of pain, I don't think we would have any basis for forming a concept of value or disvalue. I think those those uh, concepts of the, the concepts of good and bad are genetically dependent. We might say on in the concepts of value and disvalue are genetically dependent on the experience of pleasure and pain. So I don't think it makes any sense to, to talk about values apart from pleasure or pain. I think it's uh, what you might what Rand sometimes calls a stolen concept, using a concept without regard for the the genetic roots of it or the experiences from which that concept came. So I just wanted to make that point. All right. Um, I, I will just move on from that because I, I do want to move up a level specifically because I want to get to the point where say I accept and I do accept that I want to be happy. So from that, how does it follow that we should do Randian objectivism specifically? It, it seems to me that I, I actually think it's a pretty implausible assertion to say that Randian objectivism is what would make the most people happy. Um, you know, just as an applied ethical framework, it doesn't seem to me at all that uh, objectivism would lead to a greater amount of happiness in the world. So, you know, what, how do you motivate Randian objectivism being the best case for every person? Well, there's a lot that could be said there. I mean, in in a way that Ayn Rand's books are the answer to that. So uh, she she's written um, great amounts about why following her system would lead lead to happiness. But uh, we can we can try to get into that at least a little bit. Well, so I, I just have a question. Like, say because whether or not it leads to happiness is ultimately an empirical question, right? Like, we can agree on that. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, I can hear you now. Yeah, I said yes. It, oh, it is yes. an empirical question. Yeah, so say like empirical evidence came out tomorrow. I'm not saying that this would be like the case, but say empirical evidence came out tomorrow that, uh, I don't know, fascism was actually what made the most people happy. Would you accept fascism? Would you start espousing fascist beliefs in doing, like if you saw conclusive empirical evidence of that being the case? Sure, if it were conclusive, okay. <laughs> but I think it's uh, extremely unlikely that uh, I would be convinced by. I mean, people cl claim all kinds of things are the uh, path to happiness, and I think uh, you know tons of what I hear are I think are based on bad arguments. But sure, if I heard an argument that really convinced me that something other than Rand's uh, ethical system is what would lead to happiness, as she understands happiness, then yeah, I would go for that instead. Yeah, so, uh, okay, but that's that's what I'm getting at, is that you say, as she understands happiness. And I think, like, what my central claim is going to be is that she is just, um, she's committing a no-true Scotsman, where any kind of happiness that anyone derives that isn't based in the uh, values or the objectivist ethic is not considered like a valid form of happiness. And I think, I think that that's, um, you know, I don't think that that's like a valid way of reasoning. Like, I think you need better reasons to say that, for example, psychopaths are not truly happy when they are, uh, I don't know, torturing innocent people, or, you know, that I'm not truly happy when I have like, uh, if I go on welfare, you know, like, why is it? Why is it that, you know, we see all these increases in happiness when we like give people welfare, 
or that, you know, we see increases in happiness in so many different ways. Like there have been, for example, studies on universal basic income where, um, at least in a controlled setting, uh, people who are given a universal basic income are happier and, and in doing so, like they, they work the same amount, but they're also just happier. And so, uh, obviously that's not conclusive by any means, but it does offer some kind of evidence. So in order for Rand to say that, you know, we should adopt objectivism, she needs to say that that's not real happiness. But what reason is there to think that it's not real happiness? I think part of the reason is introspective evidence that we have. So as I said before, people can claim all kinds of things lead to happiness. Now you're bringing up welfare or universal basic income. But I, I don't think it's clear that uh, those things lead to happiness. And I think there are reasons for thinking they actually don't lead to happiness. If you consider the fact, for instance, that your, your income is based on parasitism, basically. You're just leave, living as a leech on other people. You haven't produced anything yourself. Is that really conducive to developing self-respect, self-esteem? Oh. I think are uh, crucial to happiness. I don't think they are. I don't think it is conducive to that. So I think we have introspective reasons, like we can observe in ourselves the sorts of things that lead to happiness, self-respect, and then see, well, if something is violating that, then I have reason to be suspicious as to whether it's actually leading, leading to uh, happiness in somebody else. Okay. So I, I would you say then it's accurate to say that uh, even though it might appear to us as happiness, when we reflect on it, it's not in accordance with good values. And in, in doing so, and in it being not in accordance with good values, that makes it not real happiness. It, it, it's, it doesn't even appear to be happiness. Not to me, at least. I mean, you can't just look at a, if somebody's smiling. I mean, that's such a superficial thing. I mean, what are you going by to judge whether it appears to be happiness? I mean, it appears as happiness to them is what I'm saying. Sorry, just, well, just just to be clear, like if they, you're saying that like somebody, you know, they get, a, you know, their universal basic income check and they feel happy. But then what you're saying is, is that if they were to reflect on it, they would see that there are these values that it's contradicting. And the contradiction of those values makes it not real happiness. I, I, I would even question that they feel happy because that, that's that's baked in your assumptions there, okay. that they feel happy. I don't, I don't know that they do feel happy. Um, I, I think that... I don't think just being given a handout is... I think happiness is something you have to earn. I don't think it's something that can so, be given to you. So that's a, an empirical... Okay, so how about how about I say joy then, right? Because uh, Ayn Rand is saying that happiness is a state of non-contradictory joy, right? So clearly she thinks you can feel joy without... Um, without needing to be in accordance with objectivism, right? So it, you could feel something positive. Yeah, like doing drugs, you could get a little high from that. Okay. Oh. So so okay, but the, what I'm saying is is that if they feel something like joy, which appears to which like in conventional it, the conventional idea of which is like they're feeling happy, it's not like the joy that they're feeling is not actually happiness because the values that are implicit in them feeling that joy are contradictory with 
the objectivist ethic or like the rational ethic. It's not just the value judgments. That's the cognitive sort of thing. It seems like you're, it's also the actual emotions. Like I, I think if you're, if you're a, uh, uh, you get, you get, uh, you're taking alcohol and you might get a momentary pleasurable feeling, but it also causes a painful feeling later. Say when you get a hangover, um, or, uh, you know, you, you, uh, eat cheesecake, but you're supposed to be on a diet. You get some momentary pleasure later. You also get some pain you might feel guilt for breaking your diet. Cause you know, this is going to put you in danger of getting a, a heart attack say, because you're maybe you're overweight and your doctor told you to avoid it. So it's not just that on a cognitive level, there's some kind of clash in the emotional level itself. There's a kind of clash. It's a, it's not a pure joy. It's a contradicted joy. It's not a non-contradictory joy. It's kind of a joy laced with pain or pleasure that's infused with guilt. There's different, you can have uh, mixed emotions about something. It's not just all one or the other. So th the point about it being non-contradictory joy is not just that it contradicts your um, values that you can reason your way to, but you, the actual feelings that, that you have. Like you might feel guilt if you just get a welfare check and you know that you're Living as a leech, or at the very least, you don't feel the the positive of self respect that you get from actually earning your paycheck. So, crucially, though, what is like those virtues? What were those virtues based on to begin with? Virtues. So, I, I mentioned um, rationality is the basic yes. virtue, but then there are yeah. six aspects of that that I mentioned: mm -hmm. uh, independence, integrity, honesty, justice, productiveness, and pride. And so, man sees these as principles to live your life by that will help you achieve your happiness mm -hmm. in the long run. Yeah, so it will help you achieve your happiness. So the, the reason that you adhere to these virtues is because they help you achieve your happiness, right? Right. But I, I don't think that um, – what if the happiness that you get is like contradicts those? And you're you're just seem you seem to be saying that in principle it's impossible that your happiness could be in contradiction with those principles, like and that it's not really happiness if somebody has a good experience from it. You know, it's not actually happiness because it works against them in the long run. But you know, what if it doesn't? What if I say it doesn't work against me in the long run? How how do you know that it will work against me in the long run? I think that. It's pretty implausible to say that, you know, how they actually feel in that moment is not happiness. I don't think it's implausible. I, and I think it's it coheres with my experience that if I adhere to these virtues, it, it helps me achieve happiness. And if I break these virtues, if I if I give up my integrity, if I lie to people, if I'm not honest, if, if I don't earn my own income if i'm just a parasite if i'm a dependent on people uh these things all all inflict psychological harm on me now if if you if you tell me <laughs> that this doesn't happen to you then i would say well i i just uh i i can't convince you i i'm not i'm not really uh i, I would be very suspicious that it's true that people normal people wouldn't suffer if they violated these virtues but if it were actually true that there were some way for them to get the kind of happiness that I experience by uh, rejecting these virtues, then I think that's what they should do. I, I just I doubt say, that that's actually going to achieve yeah, it. So I would say that 
it's, I would say that it's not only is it plausible, but I think it's the case for most people that they derive happiness or joy from not adhering to these virtues, at least sometimes. And, you know, the case, I can make the case again with universal basic income where, um, you know, there have been some controlled studies and you could dispute them if you wanted to. But if you wanted to look if, and like look into it, but it, there, it seems to be the case, at least on a surface level, that the people who are getting the universal basic income, which is parasitism, you know, according to Rand, they were benefiting a lot from it and relative to the control group who wasn't. Um, and it seems to me then that actually by violating the objectivist ethic, they've truly achieved their happiness. And now maybe you, maybe you as a person wouldn't feel that kind of joy. Maybe you wouldn't um, experience that happiness, but, but it seems, I, I think that in this case, you would actually be the outlier here. I think that in most cases, people don't really have that much of a qualm with it. And, you know, their happiness derives not from, uh, you know, these abstract like virtue principles, but more, you know, are they able to actualize the ends that they see fit or that they, um, that they have in mind for themselves? I think there are a lot of, uh, I think there's very bad methodology in the social sciences in general. Um, so I am very uh, suspicious and skeptical of uh, lots of what is done in uh, the social sciences studies about happiness or psychological studies. Um, you know, you've heard about these grievance studies, the hoax studies that, that have been, you know, pushed through peer review process and they come out and then they reveal it's all a hoax. Um, so I, 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 think I would actually push back on that a lot because I don't think that um, the studies that you're talking about, like how many of, have you read them? Like the, the so-called grievance studies? I know I've just, I've, I've heard about this sort of thing, but I have read um, uh, some, like I, I took a psych 101 course and uh, I, I've taken philosophy courses where they think, you know, some people say there's scientific evidence against free will. Many psychologists don't even believe in free will. I don't. I think there's an empirical. Yeah, I, I think I saw on your Twitter that you're a, a oh. determinist. <laughs> to, uh, to be clear, uh, my my Twitter my Twitter bio is just a joke. Because... To be clear, he had no choice. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I think there are there are uh, many cases of bad methodology in in the social sciences. Uh, such that I'm uh, I'm very suspicious, and I think it's very un unreliable the sorts of things they come out uh, come out with. And I think even what they mean by something like happiness is uh, something I wouldn't agree with. It might just be lack of um, anxiety or something like that. I I've heard these analyzed by uh, Euron Brook. He's a podcaster I listen to a lot. He's done an analysis of these so-called happiness studies that show that people in Scandinavia are happier. And he go, he goes through and he I think he does a pretty good job of debunking uh, a lot of those claims. So that's one reference I can throw out for, if anyone wants to more into this. Yeah. So I think that it, it seems to me then though that how how would I ever dispute this on empirical grounds? 
you know, like what, what kind of study methodology would something have to have in order for me to show it to you? And you say, oh, well, that's actually good evidence. Like, how do I measure the kind of happiness that you're talking about? Like the, the quote unquote real happiness. I think introspection plays a very important role here. So, I mean, ultimately you have to do what's introspectively you think makes you the happiness. And introspectively for me, I think Ayn Rand's uh, ethics makes a lot of sense. I mean, every day I get, I have emotional experiences based on what I'm doing that's re constantly reinforcing uh, uh, the view that it is good to adhere to these principles. So you would have to come up with somehow uh, point to experiences that I have that I can relate to that show when I broke these virtues, I didn't feel guilty. It didn't cause problems. Instead, it actually made me feel better. And I just don't have experiences to draw on that that's, uh, would allow you to show that. And it, I mean, if you do, then, okay, I think you should go ahead and, and do your, you know, breaches of integrity and honesty and all that. If that's really, can you better off? So to be clear, I, I, Crucially, what I'm getting at is not, you know, how would you know for yourself whether or not you're happy? I'm asking in the context, like in a public context, in the context of the collecting empirical evidence, how would you demonstrate happiness mm -hmm. ever? Like in, even in principle, because it seems to me like, you know, if you're not going to trust the methodology of like asking people if they're happy, then how, how else are you measuring it if not through the social science methodology that you have such a problem with introspection that's a big part of it no i mean for other people like how do you know that other people are happy so like you can say that you are introspecting and that you are coming to these values and saying and like not actually being happy when you're parasitic according to rand's view but how would you demonstrate that that's true of other that it's true of other people if not through social science methodology I think we have a common nature. We're all humans. This is reminding me of the question, like, how do you know other people are conscious? I know I'm conscious. I just have the experiences directly. So I can just rely on my introspection. But how do I know that anybody else is conscious? Well, they're like me. They're also humans. So I, I figure same cause, same effect. It's reasonable to think that they're conscious too. Likewise, in the case of happiness, we're all humans. And I think the sorts of causes that lead me to be happy are also going to lead other people to be happy. That doesn't mean... We have to live identical lives in the sense of like, well, I'm a philosopher, and therefore everyone else has to be a philosopher in order to achieve happiness. No, you could be a doctor, you could be an engineer, you could be a janitor, you could be an Uber driver. There are many different ways, but I think there are certain underlying fundamental things you need to do, such as having some kind of productive clear, uh, career, as opposed to just being a leech, living as a parasite on others. Um, I think there are some universal things which apply across the board. And uh, that's just because we're all human. Okay, so, but this is, I guess, the thing. So you're saying, like, you are introspecting and that you are coming to the conclusion that certain things make you happy. And then you're saying, well, I'm human. The other people around me are human. You know, those same reasons that I'm happy should also apply to them. But you're crucially not uh, going all the way with it because you acknowledge the fact that there's variation. You know, you say that, um, you know, not everybody might want to be a philosopher. Some people might want to be doctors or lawyers or whatever else. But if you're going to make the inductive inference that 
people have like these same fundamental virtues. Why aren't you going all the way with it? Where's the line at which point you stop inferring that the things that you, that are true of you are not true of everyone else? I guess this is also based on my own experience. Like if I had a career for a while doing something else, like I was a teacher for a while, let's say, or I was a tutor, I also experienced uh, happiness that way, at least some amount of it. I also was a Uber driver for a while and I, I felt good about that. Then for a while, I just kind of loafed around and I was on welfare checks. I'm not saying this actually happened, but uh, if I've been unproductive and I start to feel bad, then I can abstract the similarity. Well, what is it in common between being an Uber driver and being a teacher and being a philosopher on the one hand where I felt good in all those cases, but I didn't feel good when I was just uh, getting welfare checks from the government? Well, maybe it's that in one case, I was supporting myself in some way. I was engaged in some kind of tra trade with other people. I was providing some service, and then I got paid in return. Whereas in this case, uh, I was just getting money. I wasn't engaged in any kind of trade. So by abstracting the similarity between different sorts of actions, you reach what is the fundamental. So the fundamental for Rand in this case is productiveness. She talks about productiveness as being a virtue. It's not the virtue of being a dentist being an Uber driver, she puts it at a more abstract fundamental level, which is productivity. And how does she reach it at that level? Well, I think that's just based on experiences you have and you abstract what's similar and different. Yeah. So, but similar for you and different for you, right? So the thing is that what you're talking about here is even though you say you got something out of it in this theoretical scenario, you would still have that, like the productive work wouldn't be equal uh, in terms of the happiness that it gives you, correct? Like there would be, it doesn't seem plausible to me that everybody would be happy doing the same job just insofar as it's productive. There are things about the job or the activity that you are doing that give you happiness above and beyond the the it being productive, right? Well, I mean, some jobs can be better suited to you than others, but I think there's 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 still a commonality that's all productive endeavors make you better off psychologically and again yeah. this is based on my experience mm -hmm. uh than just uh being a parasite so i i want to but this is what i want to hammer in on now, though is that you're saying different jobs are suited to different people but if you're making the inductive inference mm. that other people would experience more happiness based on you know doing productive work why aren't you also making the inductive inference that they would be happier doing the specific kind of productive work that you find rewarding? So, you know, you can say like, um, if it seems to me that if you're really assuming or if you're really extrapolating from your experience to everybody else, that everyone else would also be better off being a philosophy PhD because that's what you chose to do. That's what gave you the most amount of happiness. And based on that same methodology of, you know, introspecting and seeing what works for you and then just applying it to everybody else, it seems to me then that you should draw that same conclusion for like specifically what they would be best going into, not just the principle of productive work. Does that make sense? I think I see what you're asking. I just, I, I don't see why fact that a certain career suits me the best would imply that it should also be the best 
for others. Okay, wait, but that's that's my whole point is that it the fact that you enjoy the career does not imply that it would be the best for others. But by the same reasoning, I can say that the fact that you don't enjoy sitting around getting welfare checks does not mean that others wouldn't enjoy that. But I, I have had experience. The fact that I haven't experienced pleasure getting. Oh, but I, I've experienced doing things that uh, are unproductive and waste time wasting, as I see it. But you're saying maybe others would a pleasure. Well, yeah, because what uh, what I'm that? saying is is that like it still ultimately degrees, right? Like you, I I don't know how much how many different jobs you've tried in your life, but. You know, clearly you settled on philosophy on a philosophy PhD. And what you said here was that you don't think that just because you enjoyed philosophy the most, that it means everyone will enjoy philosophy the most, right? Uh, so, but based on that same reasoning, why can't I object to you saying that everybody would necessarily be like um, upset with um, getting welfare checks? Because you're just basing you you said in your you said yourself that the fact that you enjoyed philosophy the most doesn't mean other people will enjoy philosophy the most. But the fact that you don't enjoy getting welfare checks, why does that mean that nobody else will? Like, what's the difference here between the two uh, cases? I think in in the case of welfare checks, you're not supporting yourself, and I think you have to look at it at that level. So it's it's not that I'm it's not just that I'm okay with being a philosopher. It's so it's that I'm okay and I enjoy being able to support myself, and that is going to be lacking in someone else. So if if someone else is able to enjoy themselves and get the kind of self esteem that I get from working and supporting myself by taking welfare checks, then they should take welfare checks. Okay. I, I just don't think they're going to get the kind of self-esteem that I can get or that anyone can get from supporting themselves by getting welfare checks. Yeah, but, but if they can, go for it. Okay, but your my point is is that your basis for – like what I'm trying to point out here is that your basis for saying that they wouldn't is based on your own introspection and um, your own feelings about what would be uh, good for you. But I think that – That we're all you, human. Yeah, well, that that we're all human. Okay, but you're very quickly, you... uh, serious. Finish your point, and then I'm going to give Dan the last word, and then we're going to move on to um, audience questions. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess what I'm getting at here is that you're making like a very specific. You're being a little bit um, selective with what you're willing to uh, infer about everyone else, because you're not willing to infer that everybody would be better off being a philosopher, but you are willing to infer that at least most people wouldn't be satisfied collecting welfare checks. And what I would say then is that, you know, what's the tiebreaker there? Why is one of those a better inductive inference than the other? And the, the thing that I would say is that you need to ask them, you need to like observe them and you need to say, you know, what makes you happy? And they can communicate back to you what it is that makes them happy. And, you know, from learning about that, I think you it, you give a pretty good um, justification to not believe the that objectivist ethics would make you happiest. That's my final word. All right, and uh, okay. Dan. So I I don't think you can just ask people uh, what whether they're happy. I think a lot of people 
are not going to give you a clear answer. Maybe they don't even know themselves. I think you need to uh, uh, put a lot of weight on what you introspectively experience and also pay attention to the the uh, level of abstraction which causes you to have that experience. So to go back to this example of the career, it's it's uh, not the particular kind of job that I have, but that I have a job at all uh, that uh, I think makes makes the difference here. And if if someone else is not doing that, if they're just collecting welfare checks, then I have I think you have reason based on your own experience. But also, I think you, you can observe certain things about them, like do they look happy? That's not conclusive. Uh, but I, I don't accept that if you just ask them or even just observe them that you're going to say, oh, well, they seem fine. It's, it's different than what I experienced, but they seem perfectly okay. I wouldn't say that. Um, anyway, I, I'll, I'll just stop here. All right. So we're going to run through audience questions now. We'll go for about 20 minutes. Um, hopefully we'll get time for uh, close to five or eight, I suppose. Um, so first of all, uh, Brooks, thanks you for the, uh, sorry, thank you for the $5 super chat. Um, this is a note, and I think this is a challenge to Dan, so you can respond to this. Uh, Rand explicitly said happiness is not the goal of selfishness. Did you want to retort to this or clarify? Or... The goal of selfishness? The goal of happiness. Sorry, the, sorry. Happiness is not the goal of selfishness. Uh, I'll, I'll reread the... Uh, the comment. Just a note, Rand explicitly said happiness is not the goal of selfishness. Uh, no, I don't think I think what he, maybe what he's remembering or trying to get at is that she says happiness is not the standard of ethics, it's the purpose of ethics. She draws this distinction there. So she's trying to uh, distinguish her view from hedonism which says just do whatever you feel like. Uh, she, I guess she, maybe she thinks there's a danger of people falling into that kind of uh, hedonistic view if you think happiness is the standard other than life i think she takes the phenomenon of life to be a more objective kind of standard by which to guide your actions uh so th i think that's probably what the questioner is getting at so if you l look in her essay the objectivist ethics she talks about the distinction between happiness being the purpose of ethics and being the standard of ethics and what she says is Life should be the standard, but happiness is the purpose. Although she also says in some passages, life is the purpose. But I think that's that could be consistent with her view that happiness is the purpose because happiness is just the psychological aspect of life that is worth pursuing. Okay, can I can I ask about that or? Uh, yeah, please. Uh, you're both allowed to respond after the person to whom the question is asked goes first. Yeah. Um, so I I would say then like if. So one of the things you were talking about is that there is there cannot be an infinite regress of values. So, um, and specifically, what Rand is getting at, or what Rand wants to say, is that um, if that life, or rather, sorry, that happiness is not the standard, or not the per not the standard of ethics, but is the purpose of ethics. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words a little bit. Um, if that, I don't know how that can be the case if what is justifying you taking on specific values is it going and leading to your overall happiness it seems to me then that it would be the standard of ethics no i think what she has in mind perhaps here is something like this like let's say your goal is to make a lot of money 
at, at, a, at a business. So you might think in terms of, uh, so that's your purpose. What is your standard, like, which you're using to gauge whether I should do something or not? Maybe you think the standard should be something else. Like think in terms of what, what would satisfy my customer's need? What would grow my business? Instead, think about what would satisfy my customer's need? And maybe by thinking about that, you will, you will as a result, end up making the most money and growing your business the most. So one thing is your actual purpose, but in order to achieve that purpose, you think in terms of something else, and that's what she's calling the standard. So, or to just uh, go ahead. Uh, crucially, though, that standard is ultimately subordinate to that ultimate goal. Like the reason you adopt that standard is only because of that ultimate goal, yes? Yeah, but I think the relation might be kind of tricky to spell out, and this is something I, I'm not sure I'm 100% clear on, um, because happiness is it's a psychological aspect of life. It's not an entirely separate thing. So, um, but the, uh, anyways, if you're thinking in terms of what would help me the most, uh, it's best to think of uh, what would help me further my own life the most, as opposed to what would further my own happiness. At least I think that's the claim, or I think what's meant by the claim that you should use life as the standard and uh, as opposed to happiness as the we're going to cut this one here. We're going to move on to the next one. So Brooks actually had an actual question. So I'm going to give him that one because he did do super <laughs> chat for it. Uh, this one's actually for serious. Uh, sure. Given that Rand defines selfishness as the ethics of not sacrificing things you value for things you value less, how are you not selfish? Sorry, can you... I didn't quite catch given, that. Given that Rand defines selfishness as the ethics... Let me make sure I'm not muted here very quickly. No, we're good. Okay. It's a constant worry here. Given that Rand defines selfishness as the ethics of not sacrificing things you value for things you value less, how are you not selfish? Um, say that under that definition, you could construe me as selfish. Uh, I don't think that that definition of selfishness is all that useful, specifically because um, it doesn't really have a good it, it doesn't differentiate kinds of actions like all actions are selfish under that definition um but i'm happy to say that that makes me selfish but i don't think like i think part of my point is that if we accept that kind of very broad definition of selfishness we cannot get to rand's ethics at all like it doesn't it seems indeterminate what ethics you should adopt uh dan did you want to comment i'm not sure i entirely got the question um but maybe I'll, I'll just say something else which maybe i don't know if it'll be helpful or relevant but um let's see there's there's an essay called isn't everyone selfish in in ayn Rand's book the virtue of selfishness and it, this is actually an essay by a, another contributor to her book uh, nathaniel brandon uh it's not by ayn Rand herself but he, he says there's this there's a common view that you sometimes hear, well, isn't everyone selfish? And he argues, no, uh, selfishness requires certain specific uh, courses, of courses of action, in particular, living by the sorts of virtues that I've mentioned, the rationality above all, and then the six scary virtues. It's not just doing whatever you feel like and uh, doing what you want to do. It's in a sense, everyone is doing what they want to do. Like even Mother Teresa, you might say is selfish according to this objection. Because, well, she's doing what she wants to do. Um, so isn't even Mother Teresa selfish? 
Well, he, the, this, this article argues, well, no, it's not just that the fact that you want to do something that makes it selfish. You have to ask, well, why does the person want to do it? Is the reason they want to do something because they think it's a way of subordinating their own interests to others because they think it's a way of being altruistic? Well, in that case, it's actually not selfish. So you, you have to look at the motive behind the want, not just the fact that someone wants something to determine whether it's actually selfish. Yeah. This is a question for Dan from Jama Bayorn. Uh, so, Dan, the hyper-wealthy are often living off the dividends of passive income. Are they, like welfare collectors, incapable of happiness then? They are no longer productive, after all. They're only living off of, um, if they have uh, inheritance or uh, they're, they just made a, a lucky investment at a young age and they're just living off that. I don't think there's anything per se wrong with getting rich in that way, but I think they need to have some kind of purpose in their life. They're just going to become uh, uh, playboy types who just uh, eats uh, nice food and has meaningless sex and drowns his mind in drugs and alcohol. I don't think that's conducive to a healthy, happy life where someone experiences self-esteem. I think even if you are rich, and so you don't have to work a normal job as many people do. You still have to find some kind of productive way to use your time in order to achieve happiness. Uh, Sirius, would you like to hear a comment? Um, I don't. So I guess then you would say that uh, they're not. So, so like Rand's objectivism, Randian objectivism would compel them not to do something like that to be a playboy yeah so but it wouldn't just compel them not to be a playboy it would compel them not to live off of that passive income no if you if you just have passive income i don't think there's anything wrong with using that to support yourself like to you know buy your food and your housing and so forth uh it's just that you need to do something else now that your income is secured you can't just uh spend your life vegging out in front of tv you still have to find some productive purpose some, but, maybe some hobby or goal you're trying to achieve. Yeah, but I thought that the passiveness of the income itself was what uh, induced that sense. So, what shouldn't we? Shouldn't you like reject that passive income? Because, like, what you were saying earlier with universal basic income is that universal basic income isn't actually you know making you really happy because it's like parasitic. It's not being productive, but um, you know, this passive income, now you're saying, well, this passive income, it could allow you to do things that do make you happy. And it allows you to pursue all these interests that you might, uh, you know, all these hobbies. But couldn't I say the same for universal basic income? Well, it makes a big difference how you got this income. So if you got it by coercing other people, that's where I think the problem is. So if you're a parasite, you're a leech on other people. It's not that someone voluntarily chose to leave you their fortune. <laughs> Or you got lucky in the market, and that's how you became rich. It's rather you're using physical force, means of the government, um, to leech off of other people. So I think that's that's the crucial difference that makes it okay in one case and not in the other. All right, uh, this is for Dan from uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly from Zemnoid. Uh, Dan, what is the fundamental nature of rationality? Fundamental nature of rationality. I guess it's, uh, I can look up a definition to just give you what Rand says about it, but maybe instead of doing that, I'll just give you what I come up with off the top of my head. 
uh, keeping yourself in touch with reality. Be, uh, that would be at least the start of what rationality is. Keeping your minds uh, in touch with reality as opposed to um, uh, evading the facts or sticking your head in the stands and not, not acknowledging what's true. Rather, it's, it's keeping your mind focused on, on reality, on what's true. That would be kind of a very simple idea of what rationality is. And it's a matter of choice in Rand's view. We don't have to do that. That's our basic choice. So uh, okay, go on. if, sorry. I was going to ask you wanted to comment. You, you answered my question. Yeah, I guess I just want to comment because like I, I can agree to that kind of definition of rationality. Um, but I don't know then how you would get a rational ethic, right? Because it, you would need to say that not only do you value certain things, but like it's true that you ought to value those things. So I, I'm, I'm kind of confused how it, uh, how rationality leads to uh, the objectivist ethic under the definition of rationality that you're giving. Maybe this is where the um, ethical context that came up earlier becomes relevant. So in the context of ethics, um, so if what I just said a minute ago about rationality is keeping your your mind in touch, keeping yourself in touch with reality, doesn't really say anything about the the values one should hold. So I guess that keeping yourself in touch with your mind in touch with reality is a means of achieving what is the, the pleasure and a means of avoiding the pain. So we have these experiences in response of experiences of pleasure and pain in response to certain events in the world, like eating a cookie if we're a baby and, you know, scraping our knee on a rock. And um, later we have more uh, uh, complicated long range sorts of experiences um, such as going to a dentist, we, we realize even though that causes immediate uh, pain, it's, it's best for our overall long-range pleasure to undergo that. And I think in the course of our lives and having all these experiences, we, re we come to learn that keeping our minds in touch with reality is the best way, the only way, of achieving the, the long-range pleasure and avoiding the long-range pain okay. and immediate pain. It, I'm just asking because it seems like earlier you were trying to say that something leading to pleasure is what made it rational, as opposed to now I feel like the opposite, where rationality is just a tool that is good at achieving pleasure. Yeah, so the... Um... saying something is rational by the standard of what leads to pleasure and leads away from pain and you're saying am i saying something the reverse of that now well, saying that the rationality is keeping your mind in touch with reality i think if that's seen as means of achieving the pleasure and avoiding the pain it could be consistent with that view. So if you hold, let, let, so if the standard of uh, rationality is what, what achieves the pleasure and avoids the pain, and that next step, uh, we observe that keeping your mind 
touch with reality is what enables you to achieve the most pleasure and avoid the most pain, then by one step removed, I guess we get that uh, it's, it's uh, rational to keep your mind in touch with reality. Yeah. But crucially though, Curious last your mind word, in... then I'm going to the next oh, question. Yeah. Crucially though, keeping your mind in touch with reality wouldn't be rationality itself. That's what I'm getting at. Uh, Dan, do you want to respond quickly and then we'll move on? That, that's an interesting point. So instead, it, it would be a means of uh, achieving rationality rather than the essence of rationality. It's interesting, and um, maybe that's right, or at least there's something right about that. But I'd I'd want to think about that some more before totally signing on to that. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, not Brooks, thank you for the uh, $2 American. Uh, Dan, expand on how the law of identity operates, could you? Law of identity, okay, that is the A is A. That's the statement of the law of identity, which is a theme in Ayn Rand's writing. And it, um, I mean, it comes up in a lot of ways. It's, it's a very, it's a basic principle of reality as applied to ethics. Uh, I think it's, it's emphasizing the fact that man is man. So man has a certain nature and man is man. <laughs> so if you treat man as a non-man, if you treat man as some other kind of being, like as a being who um, can achieve his well-being, his happiness uh, by leaving off others as a parasite, then you're going to come up with a, a different sort of ethics uh, than Rand does. But if you, if you uh, recognize the actual nature of man, treat him as the kind of being he is, one who survival both mentally and uh existentially or physically requires productive work then you'll up with the idea that productiveness for instance is a virtue one should follow so um the idea of a is a is adhere to the nature of things don't try to rewrite reality and pretend being uh that things are other than the way they are um if you do that then you'll just experience pain and suffering instead of joy and pleasure yeah, I, I guess I, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I, I think what I would say to this is that like um, when we say everything is identical to itself, which is the law of identity, I, I think that you need to specify like what a thing is. Like this is a mirological, mirological question and not necessarily uh, like that, that the law of identity is kind of agnostic to like, but when you, when when Dan is talking about, or sorry, I don't need to address you in the third person. When, when, when you're talking about, um, you know, not in saying like man is identical to man in terms of the law of identity, man is equal to man would be the entirety of humanity is identical with itself. It wouldn't mean that, um, one individual human is identical with man. And so I don't think that, I, I don't know how you can follow from that to this idea of like a human universal that you're trying to explicate here. Does that make sense? Not sure I got it. Okay. You're saying there's like the fact that a individual man is an individual man doesn't mean that mm -hmm. uh, what is true of an individual man apply, applies to the rest of humanity. Is 
yeah and or yeah, yeah. and also the reverse which is like what what is true of humanity as a concept may not be true of man or like an and one individual person because you know this is just um the composition fallacy right like the fact that um like the fact that as an entity man has a specific set of features it does not mean that each individual part that makes up man i.e individuals also has those features right so that i mean not everything um there are going to be commonalities or similarities but also differences between the the different units of the concept man so uh, this this is harking back to our earlier discussion of career so what's true of all men at least 99.9999 percent or whatever huge percentage of men um, maybe there are free cases is that they need a productive career to survive but what's not common to all men is that they have to be philosophers or dentists or bookkeepers so there but there is something in common how do you identify... we wouldn't call them all humans yeah. oh how do you identify what the well so first of all it actually doesn't it wouldn't necessarily mean that there's all that all things have in common all things are in common, right? So you could have it be that there are three different things that each independently are sufficient to be considered a human, but you don't need to have all three, right? So then under that definition, uh, you know, some like, like say just like predicate X, predicate Y and predicate C, you know, um, then if I say anything that has predicate X or predicate Y or predicate Z is a human, then it wouldn't be the case that all of them have something in common, like one specific predicate. It would be that or statement that's the only thing they have in common, right? So that that's... Um... All right, we're going to cut it off here. Yeah. And move on to the next question. Mm-hmm. We're serious by a Werewin. Would you not start espousing fascism if conclusive evidence emerged that it led to the most happiness? Would I not? Careful with this one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> careful with this one. I mean, like, I, so, I mean, I guess putting my cards on the table, I'm a utilitarian, but I think, like, the point of, so, yeah, See, that's, yes. that's not what I meant by being careful. Okay, continue, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want to be dishonest, right? So, I, I would say that I'm in agreement with Dan that it's, like, very, very implausible that fascism could actually be uh something that leads to the most happiness but i i think the point of me asking that question in context was to show that you know rand's um rand's like entire ethical theory of objectivism is kind of contingent on empirical facts and if i dispute the empirical facts then you lose the force that objectivism is supposed to have with respect to like espousing free market capitalism if i just say or if i prove that free market capitalism is not uh the best thing ever it's not actually what leads to the most happiness then that would undermine uh rand's applied applied ethics right uh, i think that's mostly what i was trying to get at with that question uh dan would you like to comment before we move on uh yeah so i think it, it is based on empirical facts I think there's no getting around that, uh, and I, I think we need to be careful um, in terms of accessing what, what actually is an empirical fact. So, 
you can't just uh, easily determine whether someone is happy, for instance, by looking at whether they're smiling. Um, I mean, we can see pictures of Stalin smiling, right? Sometimes does that mean he was a happy person? Well, maybe if you learn a little more about him and maybe the circumstances of death, you know, he was afraid to call anyone in to help him out or something because he was worried he was going to, I don't know, something terrible would happen to him. And he died alone in his, uh, uh, in his room. <clears throat> maybe if you have a fuller context, you'll say, oh, actually, the person isn't happy. So I think we need to be very careful in um, doing happiness studies and even uh, understanding what is meant by happiness. And um, just, just uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is an, an empirical issue. But uh, I think a lot of the methodology used to determine things like happiness is is often very flawed. Okay, so we're going to continue with questions um, because there's a few more for Dan. And I, I don't want us to go like ridiculously over time. Um, I'm going to mm -hmm. limit you to uh, one set of retorts each. So Yeah, Dan... actually, ha hold on. I, I really need to use the bathroom. So I'll just let Dan talk if, if he wants to. I will cede my retorts for the first few. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay. So Apathia asks, uh, exercise is painful, but good for most people. Heroin is pleasurable, but bad for most. Clearly, pain is not intrinsically bad, nor pleasure intrinsically good. Why assert otherwise? Well, the idea is that you have to look at the overall, the net pleasure and the net pain. So um, the, the uh, net experience of pleasure is going to be higher in the case where you do exercise, at least I guess that's the idea behind the question, and the net pain is going to be uh, higher in the case uh, where you're doing drugs, or at least I assume that's what's behind the question. And I think there is, there is in every case, there there's going to be something intrinsically good about pleasure. I guess even the heroin pleasure. So there is something intrinsically good about that heroin pleasure, but there's also something intrinsically bad about the, the pain that comes from the withdrawal or whatever other negatives uh, come along with uh, as a result of using that heroin. And that's that pain, I would think, is going to outweigh the intrinsically good pleasure that you do get from the heroin. And likewise, the intrinsic pain of the uh, exercise is going to be outweighed by the intrinsic pleasure you get from having a nice body and feeling healthy and energized. So I think you could still make the case that pleasure is intrinsically good and pain is intrinsically bad, but you also have to take into account the totality uh, of, of pleasure and pain you experience across time to, dif to figure out, you know, what's actually best for yourself. And this is from Pippa. Uh, Dan, do you think the idea of happiness slash life as value is inconsistent with capitalism, which values profit? Uh, no, I, I think uh, profit is perfectly consistent with life and uh, pleasure and happiness as a value. What, in, in, what are you doing when you make profit? You're you're uh, achieving something that allows you. Like if I make a ton of profit at, at a business, then now I can uh, do all kinds of things which I couldn't do before, which might give me lots of happiness. Like now, maybe I can uh, realize my dream if I'm Jeff Bezos of uh doing space exploration because i made so much money so much profit at amazon i can now uh start i can i've gone out to outer space now myself you know if i'm jeff bezos and maybe i'll be able to realize my dream of going to mars with all this these amazing profits 
I've been able to to uh, earn. So no, I think uh, profit is, integrates perfectly with with capitalism and happiness. Did you hear one of his employees uh, miscarriage because she couldn't get maternity leave while he was in space? I thought that was interesting. His employee had uh, yeah. oh, uh, a miscarriage. Yeah, it was, when he in very close proximity. I don't know if it was like during or or after Sirius is gone. So we'll chat for a couple seconds to buy time. Um, uh, I'm back, by the way. Oh, you are back. Yeah, one of his. Uh, it was a it was a news thing that kind of uh, flitted by. One of his an Amazon worker was unable to get maternity leave while she was pregnant, so she miscarried from stress. I assume. Um. Need better labor laws. Ones where the government is not interfering, that's what I would say. Yeah, that was that was the problem there. Um, Lumpy asks, uh, Dan, how do you reconcile your statement that discussion of values is genetically dependent on the experiences of pleasure and pain with the possibly unbounded genetic diversity present in humans? Unbounded genetic diversity. I mean, there's... I think there's unbounded is probably, probably an overstatement, but yeah, you don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's this. Maybe this is again like the career case. There are some differences. Yeah, there's of course there's going to be genetic differences that cause us to have different uh, skin color and hair color and all kinds of traits. There are still commonalities which make us all human. So the the um, I think we're uh, what's going to be common is that we experience pleasure as intrinsically good and pain as intrinsically bad. And that's consistent with there being, uh, at least with within a certain range of uh, latitude, uh, genetic differences. I'm serious. Would you like to comment? Uh, no. I I think that I've I've mostly gone over that like already. That I think that uh, you know, we need. It's not been conclusively established what, if anything, is universal to the human experience and. I think that if we're going to be basing like ethical theories on that, we need uh, more uh, more conclusive evidence to show that people actually do have these like underlying universals that are being talked about. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna close off with a with a legal political question that sort of occurred to me from the uh, well we were talking briefly when you were when you were gone there. So uh, Dan, you made the interesting comment. Um, we need better labor laws to offset cases of worker exploitation resulting in, you know, harm to, to employees. Um, and you, you propose that we need better labor laws, but you also propose that the government needs to not get involved. So my question to you is, uh, what does a law look like that is not imposed by a government? Maybe the better later labor laws is no laws in the sense of no regulations. So there should definitely be laws, but regulations that's that's my view where a regulation is is a case where uh the government is initiating force it's requiring company to do something like pay a certain minimum wage against the will of the parties involved so it's not that uh, there was voluntary agreement between a employer and employee to have a certain wage rather it's imposed by some third party the government by force that they have to act in a certain way and that's what I'm calling a regulation. Uh, so that's what I think is bad. Coercion, I think, is is bad. The initiation of force is bad. And I think that that prevents progress and uh, makes things go backwards instead of forwards. Do you think that was better for the person who miscarried? 
Like, it would it have been better if there hadn't been any restrictions at all? Like, would it have been better? It, it, like, with that person who ended up miscarrying, would they have had a better time? And would they actually have not miscarried had it been the case that there were no labor laws here? I don't know all the details of the case, but I think in the long run, if we, like if we if we had had good labor laws, which I'm saying is lack of like regulations, if we had had that for like hundreds of years, she probably wouldn't even been in that first position in the first place. So I think she would have been uh, better off if we had a system of freedom. Maybe you can argue in a very isolated case, you know, it's better to have this law rather than not. Uh, maybe maybe it is better to have the law, but if you take a longer range view. And uh, no, I think she'd be better off if we didn't have regulations. So I, we were at some point closer to that in the history of the United States, right? Yeah, I think uh, at least in many respects, late 19th century America was the closest to laissez-faire free market capitalism that there has ever been. Sure. So then why did people agitate? or labor laws under that system if it was actually better for them? Uh, I think part of it, may, maybe uh, much of it, maybe the majority of it could have been due to uh, bad philosophic ideas. Uh, like there, Marxism was uh, a thing in the mid-19th century. The Communist Manifesto came out in 1948. And German philosophy was in the 19th century the the dominant sort of philosophy i think in in western civilization and uh you know that philosophy is uh i think heavily influenced by kant and hegel hegel being a collectivist uh where uh, the individual can be sacrificed to the states and I, I think these philosophic ideas are what led to the erosion of capitalism which was actually lifting people out of poverty as had never been done before in all of human history. But because of these bad philosophic ideas, I would argue they were bad, and Rand and many objectivists have, have written about this. Uh, these philosophic ideas uh, were pushing in the opposite direction and leading to people to agitate for more and more government intervention, even though it was the, it was the absence of uh, government intervention which was allowing things to get better. Uh, if things were good for them, though, then why would they turn to some other philosophical idea? Uh, well, I think altruism is uh, part of the the reason here. You know, if you think if the moral code hasn't been challenged until Ayn Rand, really, like, I mean, ancient Greece was a, a egoistic civilization, but since then, Christianity and altruism has been the Wait, dominant. Hold on, I don't, I don't want to. I I actually want to hard pushback on the idea that ancient Greece was an egoistic civilization. Like, I think that, like, the idea of an egoistic civilization, it seemed to me, if anything, that uh, ancient Greece was very collectivist in terms of uh, how it how it very much prioritized, like, social harmony or, you know, uh, like, and stuff like that. You know, how does social, like, if you talk about social harmony, that's not necessarily talking about an individual, you know, that could be talking about, you know, everybody being in their proper place. I don't say that ancient Greece was perfectly uh, individualistic or egoistic, but I think it was much more so 
than any prior uh, culture that existed or any culture that's, that came after it until maybe the the Enlightenment. Um, so, you know, before Greece, you had these, you know, just despotisms or you have these, uh, where, whereas in Greece, for the first time, you get democracy. So I think even even democracy is not perfect individualism if it means un, unlimited majority rule, but at least you're, you're making a step in the direction of having people be able to govern themselves and have some kind of more, more autonomy than just being, you know, the the subject of some ruler without any say in how your own life goes. So I think there was a step, a big step in the right direction with ancient Greece. But then I, I think uh, many steps in the wrong direction after that through the Middle Ages, where you had uh, the rise of Christianity and altruism and the sacrifice of the individual. And uh, that continued into the modern era. Immanuel Kant secularized the, Christian ethic of duty and self-sacrifice, and I think that has that. I think that explains why many people are 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 not uh, buying on to the individualistic uh, thick inherent in capitalism. I mean, I feel like that's there's just so about the poor. We have to we have to help out the poor. That's kind of an altruistically. Even though the poor yeah. are getting better wherever capitalism yeah, but, happens, I, I, it's just like, if you really care about the poor, that's the thing you want. It's just really strange to me that, that, like, you're saying that that like uh, that Kant. I don't know. Like, it seems to me that Kant would be. A, sorry, I don't want to get in like too far into this because it's just so many philosophical. I think we're we have. I think you and I would have very radically different readings of. Basically, all of the thinkers that you've uh, you've brought up up to this point. I it, it... I think very quickly. Um, we want to uh, have a quick shout out to our friends in the third world who provided us with this high tech equipment, and then move on to ending statements. So, Dan, you went uh, first. If you want to finish uh, with uh, your final statement, and then serious moments. Wait, wouldn't wouldn't it be reversed? Or no, it's consistent because the idea is you get to go first if you go first, and you get the last word if you go second. Okay, fair enough. That way you keep the flow. So you're not going to somebody okay, speaking twice in a row, yeah. Three minute closing statement? Uh, up to three minutes, yeah. Up to three minutes? Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. So, uh, let's see. You had mentioned something just a second ago about thanking the people in the third world for our technology. I'm not sure what that was getting at. But since you said that, um, I, I thought I would put it, give a shout out to the great scientists like Isaac Newton in the West who uh, discovered the, the knowledge in the scientific revolution that enabled us to have the technology we're, we're using right now, and also the founding fathers. I don't know what the hell just happened. Okay, OBS is now reconnected. All right, I don't know what happened. I guess our internet went down and is back up again. Um, Dan, start from the beginning. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. So I was just building off of your points about uh, thanking third world people in the third world for the technology. I wasn't sure what you were getting at that, but I thought since you mentioned that, I would I would start by saying that I want to give a shout out and thanks to people like Isaac Newton and the great scientists in the Western tradition who discovered the scientific knowledge, which is undergirding our uh, modern scientifically advanced civilization. And I would also like to say thank you to the Founding Fathers 
uh, of the United States for developing a system of freedom that allowed people to take that scientific knowledge and become entrepreneurs and inventors uh, and have things like property rights, intellectual property included, allowed our flourishing American civilization, which, to tie it back to the issue of selfishness, I think is a very selfish kind of system to have. The pursuit of happiness, which is in our founding documents, uh, is central to the United States, and the pursuit of happiness is also central to Ayn Rand's ethics. I think there's actually a, a clash between um, the ethics of Christianity and the ethics that America was founded on. It's because that's altruism still has a grip on people's moral view that we're hesitant to go full throttle and accept uh, free market capitalism in the United States. I think uh, people are reluctant to sign on entirely to the pursuit of their self-interest. They think they have a duty to help others, uh, to help the poor or uh, the homeless, and they're willing to use coercion in order to uh, achieve uh, greater outcomes. I think these are all actually antithetical. What's best for any individual society? I think everyone is going to be the best in the long run if we have a society of freedom that leaves people able to pursue their own happiness, their own well-being without interference by others. And let's see, I have about 50 seconds left, it looks like. You do. So maybe I'll just... Uh, uh, close by going back to this theme that's come up a number of times about there being a universal uh, ethic that's true of all human beings. I think, again, we don't want to be distracted by red herrings such as psychopaths, which maybe they have some different nature such that they should pursue a different sort of ethic. Uh, I think if what we're looking for is an ethics for human beings, normal human beings, to live their lives uh, best. I think objectivism provides that. But, you know, you also have to weigh it against your own experience. And there's tons you can read about on from Ayn Rand and on my own channel if you want to check out my website, which is linked in the description. Thank you. Serious. Three minutes. <clears throat> All right. Um, I guess maybe just to respond to something that was being said in uh, in in that closing where Dan was talking about, you know, how much he admires the founding fathers and how much it like, um, you know, the pursuit of happiness and life and liberty and stuff like that. Those things are, you know, antithetical to Christianity. But I would honestly say that the, especially with the founding fathers, like the idea of, you know, human rights actually came a lot from Christianity. And it's only because of Christianity that we have all of those, you know, nice things that you're talking about, where we have, uh, you know, this, you know, this society based on rights and freedom, you know, like Locke specifically, who was one of the biggest influences on the founding fathers conceived of rights as deriving from the property rights of God, who uh, owned all of us and thus granted us property rights. So I think that, you know, I'm not a Christian, obviously, but I think that, you know, maybe there's more Christianity left in Ayn Rand's ethics than uh, Ayn Rand herself or like Randians in general seem to uh, seem to think. And I guess the one last thing I want to say on the human universal is that I, I, I think that Dan and I both agree that when it comes to value, like what values 
you should adopt. I think that, or at least, sorry, not not that we both agree, but rather, Dan thinks that you should adopt the values that are most beneficial to you and will give you the most happiness. And he thinks that the values that are conducive to that are going to be ones that are in line with the Randian objectivist tradition. And what I would say is that I think this is not a uh, this is not supported by the evidence and i would encourage anybody here to you know reflect on whether or not you know they would like to for example like have more like have an easier time in their life or um be able to pursue their own interests or you know whether or not uh they would like to have say more freedom at their work like these kinds of things are all considerations that you should make if it's true that all you value is your own self-interest. And in doing so, I don't necessarily think you will arrive at the conclusion that objectivism is really the best option. Um, I don't know. I don't really have much more to say other than everything that I've set up to this point. So I will cede the rest of my time. Great. Well, thank you both. Um, and uh, Sirius, you need to show your channel as well, Dan, and you've got a few more seconds left. Oh, yeah. So my channel should be also be in the description. I don't get I don't have the uh, fancy schmancy like, uh, like user tag yet. But it hopefully if Sunday did his due diligence, my channel is in the description. Uh, I, I'm trying to um, this this debate will go up on that channel as will any future videos I make. I have actually made a video on Rand's ethics already, if anybody would like to check that out. Uh, and I plan to make more philosophy and po politics videos in the future. Cool. All right. Well, thank you both. Um, and thanks, everybody in the audience who asked questions. Um, and subscribe if you want to see more of these. Take care.